0: Well, good morning once again, and uh, it's good to be with you on the new year, and as has already been said, it's fitting that we should be together uh, at the start of a year. I know this only happens once every several years, I think the next one is in 2022, but uh, it seems fitting that we should remember Christ, not only the beginning of each week, as we already do on Sunday, but also the beginning of each year. So I'm glad we get to be together this morning, and uh, to celebrate the Lord's table this morning, it's especially uh, a blessing to me. To begin I want to echo a comment that Pastor Don made last week. He said he really appreciates Christmas carols because of their rich theology. Now he said you have to get a few verses deep sometime to get to the theology but uh, it's really really good and solid and so I've appreciated the last month where we've been able to sing those together and uh, while Christmas music in general may be an annoyance to some I feel like the truths that are in some of these uh, meteor Christmas carols uh, can't be overlooked by any uh, true follower of Jesus. And so as I thought about this theology, as we sang these songs over the past month, uh, there was a theme that kept recurring. And it's interesting because we celebrate Christmas as the time where we remember the birth of Christ. But this theme that I kept noticing over and over again in many of the different songs didn't exactly pertain to the birth of Christ, but to his death. And so I'll cite you a couple of examples here. Uh, we sang all of these songs here in church. And I appreciate Pastor Corb and his ministry uh, leading music. But the first is a verse from the first Noel. It says, Then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord, that has made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind hath bought. A verse from We Three Kings. Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice, a bloody death, sacrifice. Who is he in yonder stall? There's a verse that says, who is he on yonder tree dies in grief and agony? Who is he that from the grave comes to heal and help and save? So there's death, there's grief, there's agony, and there's a grave. Or perhaps some more recent songs. Uh, Many of you were able to be blessed by the ministry of the Gettys who were here last month. Uh, they have a song that's really, really great. Uh, we usually sing around Christmas time called Joy Has Dawned. We sang that a number of times. And there's a verse in there that says Gifts of men from distant lands prophesy the story. Gold, a king is born today. Incense, God is with us. Myrrh, his death will make a way. And by his blood, he'll win us. And yet a, a newer song still, uh, written by Matt Boswell and D.A. Carson published in 2013, called Exalt in the Savior's Birth. So it's right there in the title, Exalt in the Savior's Birth, and yet there's a line in there that says, Scriptures say that Mary's boy was born that he might die. Now it's interesting, uh, when you typically celebrate the birth of a child, you don't automatically think of their death. Uh, My wife and I were able to celebrate the birth of our first child about a month and a half ago, and uh, nobody that came to the hospital mentioned his death, Funny enough, and, uh, but yet with Christ, each year as, his, as the day we celebrate his birth comes around, we also find his death carefully interwoven as we think about him. So the question then is, what is it that God wanted to accomplish through the death of Christ? Or what did God accomplish through the death of Christ? Why was Christ born to die? Now time would fail us to adequately answer that question, But I believe if we approach at least one passage of Scripture this morning, it'll give us a little bit clearer answer uh, to this question, what did God accomplish through the death of Christ? And since we've just celebrated the Lord's Supper, uh, hopefully it will uh, shed some light on the significance of that event as well. Why is it that Christians for 2,000 years have celebrated this uh, commemorative table? Perhaps answering uh, this question, what did God accomplish through the death of Christ, will help us in that. And also, related to uh, the last verse in the passage that we typically read in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So perhaps a related question then would be, why is his death worth proclaiming? So what did God accomplish through the death of Christ, and why is his death worth proclaiming? Those are the two questions we're going to try and answer this morning. So if you turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, and if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you, uh, we have some in the pew in front of you, to take one and follow along. As you're turning there, I'll just give you a a brief bit of context to the verses we're going to be studying. Uh, Verses 13 to 15 fall at the end of a section that begins really in verse 6 of chapter 2, and Paul in these verses is trying to affirm the Colossians of who they are in Christ, Uh, It's interesting, the term Christian, which is how we often identify ourselves, the term Christian doesn't appear very frequently in the New Testament, but this phrase, in him, or in Christ, that's really the key distinction that Paul makes. There are those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. And so in this whole passage, Paul is trying to outline for this church what is theirs in Christ. And so he highlights the fact that because Christ has died, those who are in him, have died as well. That is, they've put off the old sinful ways, the flesh, and they've put on a new life in Christ. And then the kicker to me is really, beginning of chapter 3, he says, you have been raised with Christ. Now it's interesting for each of us here, sitting in this room, we're all awaiting the casket at some point. And yet, Christ says, you have been raised already. It's past tense. You have been raised with Christ. And so, Uh, constantly highlighting the fact that all that is Christ uh, is ours through his death and resurrection. So the question then is, how do we get to that point? How do we get to the point of being in Christ? And that's where verses 13 to 15 will help us understand that a bit better. So follow along as I read. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So in, these, in this passage, these three verses, I want us to, to come to a better understanding of what God accomplished through the death of Christ and why his death is worth proclaiming. There are three things that I see here. Uh, the first is he gave us life. The second is that he canceled our debts. And third, he made a mockery of Satan and his minions. So beginning in verse 13, he gave us life. Paul begins this passage, similar passage in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, when you were dead. Now death might be on a lot of our minds more recently. Uh, those of you who follow American celebrity culture, uh, perhaps over the past week you've seen some of the in-memoriam uh, Specials that they do, where they uh, remember the lives of celebrities who have died over the past year, and it's interesting because death is is very difficult for people to grapple with, especially those who don't know Christ. And it's really a tragedy, as I've been on Facebook and interacted with some of my non-believing friends who are trying to make sense of this, who don't have the hope of the gospel. They're trying to figure out what does death really mean, why does it exist, and where do you go when you die? And honestly, some of the explanations that they've come to is is just tragic. Because to many people, death is simply when your vital organs stop working. But Scripture has a different definition for death. In Scripture, death is separation from God. Right? It's a relational distance. So consider uh, the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. When the, son, or when the son returns, the father overjoyed twice says, my son was dead and he's alive again. So there's this element of when the prodigal son went away and there was a distance, uh, a lack of communication, a lack of relationship. That was what death really meant to the father. And so it is with us. Death is separation from God. But why are we dead? Well, it says we are dead in our sins. Now that word in can be a little misleading uh, because it's sort of a location word in. But it's really more of a because of our sins. Our sins is what, our sin is what has separated us from God. It's what caused us to be dead in the first place. And so if people in our culture don't like to think of death in general, much less do we like to think of death, uh, the reason for it. Because the reason for death, when we really dig down deep, it's because of us, because of our guilt and our sin. And there's really two kinds of sin that I want to talk about this morning that, that cause us to be dead, that cause us to be separated from God. The first is a, a sin of commission, Perhaps you're familiar with these terms. A sin of commission is any thought or action that is actively opposed to what God has said is, is good for our lives. So anytime in Scripture you hear, do not, but you go ahead and do, that is a sin of commission. So the Bible says, do not commit murder or do not even hate your brother in your heart. Do not commit adultery or even lust after another person in your heart. Do not gossip. Many different do nots in Scripture And interestingly, a lot of non-Christians view Christianity in just this way, a list of do-nots. And perhaps that's because sins of commission are easier to spot, right? It says, don't commit adultery or don't murder somebody. Well, it's easier to see when somebody commits one of those sins, when they actively sin against God, than when they are doing something else. So those are sins of commission, anything we do that we're not supposed to. But there's another kind of sin that's perhaps more heinous because it's more often overlooked and that is a sin of omission. Anything that the law of God commands us to do and that we fail to do or that we withhold. So for instance, anytime you hear do in scripture and do not, this is a sin of omission. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as you love and care for yourself. Honor your father and mother. These are all positive commands right christianity is not just about things that we abstain from but it's about a life of active love both to god and to neighbor so those are the things that god has commanded us to do and yet perhaps the most heinous sins are when we fail to do those things so this whole you were dead in your sins is really much worse than we would like to make it out to be you know a lot of us look at our sin and we we think about sins of commission we think, well, I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm not that bad. I don't tell lies, at least intentionally or overtly, so I'm not that bad in that realm. Or, you know, I haven't cheated on my spouse. I haven't done these dramatic sins, and so I'm, I'm doing okay. But when we start to examine our love to God, giving glory to God, when you think about the total tonnage of time and energy that we devote to things that do not involve God, that do not involve loving God or living according to his purposes, the ways that we withhold love from other people. I mean, any of us can go back less than 24 hours and find a myriad of ways that we've failed to do those things. Being dead in our sins is just that, being dead. I heard an illustration one time of a, a pastor. He uh, was in a preaching class in his seminary, and the professor took them out to a cemetery uh, just to you know, serve an illustrative purpose, He had all the seminary students line up along the the fence, and the professor said, call them out. Call them out of the grave. And so everybody's just kind of looking at each other, like, what's this guy doing, you know? And finally, one of the guys, just to humor the professor, goes up and he says, come out, you know, get out of there. And the professor, you know, over time, other people started doing it. The professor said, this is to illustrate the point that anything you try and do to call sinners to repentance apart from the Spirit of God is worthless. It's, it's futile. There's no point in doing it. And so the point here in this passage is that God is the one who makes us alive. We were dead. There was nothing we could have done to work our way back to God. Dead means dead, and there's nothing we could do to make ourselves alive. But that's where the good news comes in. That's what the gospel is, the good news. The emphasis in this passage, is that in this verse, is that God made you alive with Christ. God saves sinners. And so what he does in making us alive with Christ is he restores a relationship with himself. Right? So if death means separated from God, life means being restored to relationship with God. We don't have to fear God in the sense of not wanting to come into his presence. Because with Christ, we can come into his presence. So we ought to pray freely and confidently, boldly, as it says in Hebrews. Because we have been made alive with Christ. As Christ has access to the Father, so do we. That's the good news is that God has made us alive to live in an intimate relationship with him. And so this refutes the idea that a lot of people live with, which is that if I just live according to a certain set of moral standards and I believe that God exists, that somehow I'm a Christian. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is living in intimate fellowship with God. It means I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what being a Christian means. So to think that somehow if we just abstain if we keep all the do nots that somehow that makes us christian that's a worldly idea and we need to get rid of it but god has made us alive with christ he has restored us to a right relationship with him but how could a holy god be restored to a right relationship with sinners think about the weight of your sin the the sins of commission and omission that separate you from god how is it that god could bridge that gap well, that's sort of the end of verse 13, end of verse 14. He's canceled our debts. He's forgiven us all our sins. Now, it's interesting, this word canceled, uh, the Latin translation is actually "delito," So the word means deleted, right? So you ever hit the delete button on your computer, that's what God has done uh, with this written code. But what is this written code? Uh, it's kind of a puzzling thing. At a, if, to just give it a glance at the text, it can be difficult to understand. But basically, everything that we have done that has gone against the law of God, or anything that we have failed to do that God has called us to do according to his law, all of that has been recorded according to this written code. There's a record of everything that you and I have ever done. And there's a record of everything that everyone has ever said or done. And so even though we may suffer injustice in this world, everything will be held to account in God's throne room. It's an account, so to speak, a ledger. So those of you in business, you keep record books. You keep accounts so that people know you're not defrauding them. Well, the same is true of God. He has a record of everything that he's called us to do and everything that we've failed to do according to that law. And so he know, none of us can claim that God defrauds us when he pronounces judgment against us. Right? The evidence is not in our favor. He could show us a list. And so where did this written code come from? Well, for the Jews, it was the law of Moses. And so interestingly, in verse, uh, chapter 27 of the book of Deuteronomy, way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 27, the priests of the people of Israel were to stand before the people, and they read a, a litany of different charges. So whoever does this is going to be cursed. Whoever fails to do this is going to be cursed. And at the end of each one of those curses, the people were to say, amen, or I agree, it's true. Those, they, they ratified the document. They ratified this written code that God would hold them to. So what about non-Jews? Most of us in this room don't come from a Jewish heritage. So how, how is it you know, that we're accountable to this written code? Well, in Romans, Paul talks about how by virtue of our God-given consciences, right, the law of God has still been etched on us to some degree. Right? We know of his existence, though we suppress it, apart from Christ. And we know right and wrong, apart from Christ, though we also suppress that. And so even our consciences bear witness against us. And everyone in here can testify to the same thing, that your conscience has testified against you at some point. And it's interesting because when Paul talks about uh, this written code in verse 14, he uses this double phrase. He says, it was against us and it stood opposed to us. Now that's doubly bad for us, right? Everything that we've ever done is recorded and it's against us and stands opposed to us, right? There's this double emphasis, this is bad for you. But your plight before God is not good. And yet, he goes on to say, he deleted it. He canceled it. Now, how did he do this? He nailed it to the cross. So how does that work? How, how is it that God nailed this written code to the cross? Well, when you understand the image that Paul is getting at, that each sin is recorded, um, it can be tempting to think that somehow, uh, if it's an account, so to speak, that each debt needs to be repaid, right? The account needs to be uh, matched up, right? The books need to be balanced. But that's not the way God set things up. God set things up so that we who are sinners, who have gone against what God has decreed for our lives, the penalty for that is death, okay? So each of us, our, our rightful penalty is death. That is both physical death, which we're all awaiting in this life, but also separation from God for eternity. That's what was... Uh, required. And so Christ died for us, right? The wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. You all know that verse. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, the penalty that was to be paid as a result of this infraction was death, and Christ has paid that for us. When he died on the cross, that was the penalty that we deserved. Now, it's easy to gloss over that or to think too quickly through that because it's Sort of wrote in our evangelical culture but the reality is his crucifixion meant that our written code was canceled now to use sort of by way of illustration when you think about the crucifixion for those of you that know that story there was a a sign tacked above jesus head that says here's jesus of nazareth king of the jews well the sign itself would have been normal most crucified criminals would have had a sign above them that said murderer or thief or whatever the charge may have been and so each of us our rightful penalty would have been to die on one of these crosses with a sign tacked over our heads with a record of all the things that we had done but instead christ died for us and the result of this what is the result that christ died for us the full debt of the sinner has been paid Whatever your conscience testifies against you, whatever it is that the law of God testifies against you, it's been paid. The debt has been paid. God has canceled every suit and action that he has taken against the sinner that is in Christ. The payment was not for this or that sin, but as the text says right here, he forgave all of our sins. God can demand no further payment for your sins. He has obliged himself to grant pardon to those whose debts he has paid for himself. And the law itself is silenced because in Christ it has been fulfilled in a full and final manner. And this is why we sing what we just sung. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. That comes right out of this passage. My sin, all of it, everything you've done, past, present, and future, everything you've actively thought or done, every love that you have withheld, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Your conscience ought not testify against you in Christ. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you from that unrighteousness. And because of all of this, we can sing in clear conscience, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. But There's one more result of Christ's death on the cross that we ought to consider this morning, which is that he made a mockery of Satan and his minions. And the key phrase in this verse is he made a public spectacle of the powers and authorities. And it's interesting because we've, we read about the only other instance of this phrase in Scripture, this phrase, a public spectacle. Uh, we just read about it last week where it said that Joseph did not want to make a public spectacle of Mary uh, by divorcing her publicly, so he resolved to do it quietly. Right? Joseph wanted to do it quietly. He didn't want to make a public spectacle This says the exact opposite. God wanted to make a public spectacle of Satan and his minions. He wanted to run up the score. You know, some of you are sports fans. You don't like it when the other team runs up the score. God was running up the score on Satan. He was canceling all the debts that he held in his hand. And how did he make a public spectacle of them? Well, it's related to this word triumph. He triumphed over them by the cross. So a Roman triumph uh, would have been a military parade. So anytime. Rome would go out and win a victory somewhere. They'd come marching back into Rome, and all the people would stand on the sides of the road and observe. And the commanding general would march in the front, and behind him would be his army, all in their shining armor. And behind them, in chains, most likely without clothes and bloodied and beaten, were the vanquished. That was who was trailing in the triumphal procession. So in front you have the victors, in back you have the vanquished. It's interesting because Jesus, though he is the bloodied and beaten one, is leading the triumph. He's leading the procession. And Satan and his minions, though at times showing themselves to be angels of light, dressed in shining things that are attractive to us, are actually the ones who are in the back in chains, vanquished. See, Satan held his power over mankind because he held this written code. Satan is the one who accuses us before God. So think of Job chapter 1, or Revelation chapter 12, Satan is the one in God's throne room who says, look at these people. They've cursed you to your face. They've done exactly what you told them not to do. You ought to punish them. You ought to judge them. He accuses us before God. But when God destroyed the written code that was against us, he disarmed Satan. Satan himself cannot testify against you if you're in Christ, because the written code that stood against you has been deleted been deleted. Satan can't testify against you, which is why Paul can say, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, Romans chapter 8. And so not only has our guilt been removed, but the power of sin has also been removed. See, we're both the perpetrator and the victim of sin. We're both guilty of committing sins, and we're under the power of sin. We're held captive by it. But in Christ, we are neither, neither. We're neither guilty nor held under its power. And so that means not only do we live with clear consciences because what of Christ, what Christ has done, but we live free to live lives of gratitude and love to God and to our neighbor. We're free to do that because of Christ. Now, it's not always our experience because in his uh, divine sovereignty, God has allowed Satan to continue, uh, even though he's been defeated by the cross. He has not yet admitted defeat. And so we certainly look forward to the day when God makes all things new and Satan is banished forever. But these are things to consider. So the questions, what did the death of Christ accomplish, and why is it worth proclaiming? Well, it accomplished the reconciliation of God and sinners. That's what we think about at Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. But not only that, it can be well with our soul because of what Christ has done. That's why we celebrate this to ease our consciences, to know that the penalty has been paid in Christ. But this is only good news if you are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, if you haven't turned from your sins and trusted and allied yourself to Christ by faith, then the written code still stands against you and you're still dead in your sins. So let this be the day to turn from that and to be freed from the power of sin. So even though it's new year's day i didn't want to talk about resolutions or anything like that uh, i wanted to talk about the cross especially since it's communion sunday but i think there is a place for resolutions in the christian life so this year let us resolve to do two things one reflect deeply and often about the meaning of the cross think about what christ accomplished there for you you know outside uh the chapel there we've got luke 2 says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior. The Savior is yours. He's given for you. When Charles Spurgeon, the famous British preacher, was once preaching on Christ in the communion service, he said, let him have chief place in our memories. Let that be a resolution for this year. And then second, proclaim its good news. Proclaim the good news of Christ's death. You know, Paul says when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Once a month, first Sunday of every month, make it a resolution to be here as we proclaim the Lord's death together. I know we alternate morning and evening services, but consider that a priority, that this is more important, to remember Christ is more important than whatever else we could be doing at that time, whether it's here or with another gospel preaching church. And then proclaim it to somebody who doesn't know right? Uh, faith comes by hearing, and hearing uh, through the word of Christ. There's only two kinds of people in the world. You know, sometimes people give these adages, there's only two or three kinds of people. There really are, according to Scripture, only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. And I'll bet you every person in this room knows at least one or two people that are outside of Christ, who haven't really considered the meaning of the cross, who haven't considered that their plight before God is much worse than they ever could have dreamed. But at the same time, God has loved them more than they ever could have dreamed in Christ. So let those be our ambitions and our resolutions this year, to proclaim Christ in whatever way we can. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, your Son. Father, may we be people who think deeply and often about the cross, And though we cannot understand it in its entirety, may we be people who think about what you have accomplished through Christ on the cross. Father, let us live new lives this day with a renewed devotion to you and your purposes in this world. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.